This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Have you been wanting to read more, but don't seem to have the time? Well, with Audible, you can read your books without having to find the extra time in your busy schedule. Stuck in traffic on your way home from work? Why not marathon the Harry Potter books? In the gym and want to learn about the First Lady? Well, you can listen to Becoming Michelle Obama while doing leg day. And if you go to audibletrial.com cultivate, you get a month free of Audible. That includes one credit that you can trade in for any audiobook of your choice, access to thousands of audiobooks free to listen to with your account, and best of all, you have access to all of your favorite podcasts in the app as well. So be sure to go to my link, audibletrial.com cultivate. That's C-U-L-T-I-V, the number eight, to sign up for a free month of Audible and start reading today. Thank you, Audible, for supporting the show. We are. We are. We are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. Doctors are supposed to offer care to those who are most in need, but Dr. Harold Shipman took advantage of his patients and in a brutally ironic turn of events, went on to become one of the most active serial killers in English history. Utilising their trust, Shipman would first give false diagnosis to his patients before administering a fatal dose of diamorphine. Unknown to as many as 250 people, their trip to Harold Shipman's office would be their last. This is the case of the angel of death, Dr. Harold Shipman. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. Welcome to episode 31 of Horror House, True Crime and the Macabre. So firstly, I hope you, yes, I'm talking about you. I hope you are feeling fine. And two, that wasn't a blunder. This is episode 31. I hear you ask, where is episode 30? Well, episode 30 is right there on the Horror House Patreon page which will be linked in the show notes. And just saying, you know, if you want to hear episode 30, which is an unsolved mystery or an unsolved murder, then, you know, maybe follow the link in the bio, hit that Patreon button, you know, and go and go and join the Horror House Patreon. And you can listen to that juicy bonus episode. So what have I got for you lovely people for episode 31? Well, It's a true crime case from right here in the motherland, and it's a case of a doctor of death. It is the case of Dr. Harold Shipman. So get cosy and make a brew, because it's time for some British true crime. Those bars, though. All those bars. (laughs) Harold Shipman was the second of three children born to lorry driver Harold Frederick Shipman and Vera Britton on the Bestwood Estate uh, in Nottingham on January the 14th, 1946. Throughout his time in school, Harold Shipman would show promise as a student and was a standout in sports such as rugby. After passing his 11 plus exam in 1957, Shipman would enrol in High Pavement Grammar School in Nottingham, 
which he attended until 1964. He was a strong distance runner and would serve as the team's vice captain in his last year at the grammar school. When Shipman was 17 years old, the direction of his life would change. His mother Vera, with whom Shipman was particularly close to, received a lung cancer diagnosis. In the last stages of her illness, she had morphine delivered at home by a doctor, which would later become Shipman's own modus operandi. Shipman saw his mother's discomfort ease despite her grave illness until her passing on June the 21st, 1963. After his mother would pass away, Shipman would marry Primrose May Oxtaby in November 1966, while he was still a medical student at Leeds University Medical School. Together, the couple would have four children, and on the surface, Shipman's life would appear to be rather typical and very ordinary. He started working at Pontefract General Infirmary in Pontefract, West Riding of Yorkshire, after graduating in 1970. And in 1974, he accepted his first general practitioner or GP position at Abraham Ormerod Medical Centre in Todd Morden. The year after, Shipman was discovered fabricating uh, pethidine prescriptions for his own use. He would pay a £600 fine and would spend a short time in, in a York drug rehab facility. In 1977, he would train as a GP at the Donnybrook Medical Centre in Hyde in Greater Manchester. So that was a sign of things to come from, from old Harry boy, just... Uh, just putting that out there. Shipman would work here for the following 15 years of his career before starting a solo practice in 1993. He would earn a reputation as a caring and competent doctor among his patients and in his neighbourhood, and he was also renowned for his bedside manner. But nobody was aware that the quote-unquote good doctor was also killing his patients in absolute silence. The irony is real <laughs> in this one, people. It was March 1975 when Shipman would take his first patient, 70-year-old uh, Ava Lyons. It was the day before her birthday, and at this point, Shipman had access to more than enough diamorphine to kill hundreds of people, though no one was even aware of his addiction until the following year. Despite being fired that year for falsifying prescriptions, Shipman was not expelled, from the General Medical Council, which oversees doctors. Instead, he was just given a warning. You know, a, a, just a slap on the wrist. Because, I mean, in the end, all he did was falsify, falsify prescriptions. According to investigators, Shipman would stop and restart his killing spree many times throughout his decades of terror. But Shipman would always use the same deadly technique. He would prey on the weak with Peter Lewis, uh, age 41, being his youngest victim, and Anne Cooper, aged 93, being his oldest. He would then either watch them die there or send them home to die after giving them a deadly dose of diamorphine. He is thought to have killed a total of 71 patients while working at the Donnybrook Clinic and the remaining victims while running his solo business. 44 men and 171 women were among his victims. Man was grinding. Man was putting in work. Shipman didn't want no goddamn rookie numbers here. Sheesh. 
However, in 1998, it would all start to unravel for the quote, good doctor. And now it's time for a quick commercial break as we hear from some awesome shows. So I shall see you back here in a jiffy. Howdy folks, and welcome to the Nerdstalgic Podcast trailer. Now, if you listen to this, there's a high chance that you've never listened to me before. So allow me to introduce myself. I am Luke, your host, and join me on a trip of all things nerdy and nostalgic, where I'll be diving deep into the movies, video games, TVs, books, and comics, and all the things that you love. Uh, If it's nerdy, and there's some hint of nostalgia to it, no matter how small, uh, I will be there to talk about it. So join me as I take a trip down the Nerdstalgic Highway, and I really hope that you enjoy the show and that you tune in every week. So, without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? Hello, let me introduce myself. I am John Dotson, and I host The Secret Sits, a true crime podcast. If you're like me, you undoubtedly have quite a few podcasts you listen to on a regular basis. Now, I, for one, love a great chatty podcast with multiple hosts. It can really make you feel like you're just hanging out with some friends. But sometimes you need to chill out and relax while listening to an extraordinary true crime story with no interruptions and just the facts. The Secret Sits strives to push boundaries and present cases in an immersive storytelling atmosphere. I've spent my life working as a director, writer, and performer, and I've been fortunate enough to travel all over the world, creating art through theater, television, and film. Now I'm fervently bringing my passions for true crime cases and the arts to this podcast. Here on The Secret Sits, we cover all types of true crime, from serial killers like Eileen Warnos and Rodney Alcala, to cults, museum heists, mass shootings, or any other cases we find interesting. Every Thursday, immerse yourself into a new episode you may find yourself in the Aokigahara Forest in Japan or recounting the Columbine school shooting minute by minute. The Secret Sits podcast is not responsible for any loss of road rage, Calgon taking you away, being more polite in the grocery store, or suddenly becoming an armchair detective. You can find all episodes of The Secret Sits for free on all podcast platforms, including YouTube. And now, back to the episode. Concerned about the high mortality rate among Shipman's patients, Linda Reynolds of the Brick Surgery in Hyde would voice her worries to John Pollard, the coroner for the South Manchester District in March 1998. She was particularly concerned about the enormous number of forms for old women's cremations that he had required uh, counter-signature on. And that could have spelt an end for Shipman's crime spree, right? You know, that could have been that could have been it. Wrong, because the most fundamental of checks, such as determining whether Shipman has a criminal history, were not made throughout the police investigation. They would have discovered that he had previously falsified prescriptions if they did inquire about what was on his file with the medical board. The police ended up ended the inquiry on April the 17th after determining that
that there was insufficient proof to file charges. Additionally, the cunning shipman hid his tracks by documenting fictitious diseases for his victims. Because there was nothing suspicious discovered throughout the investigation, the murderous doctor was free to continue his work, i.e. his killing spree. <laughs> Not his actual job, just killing people. Greater Manchester police were eventually held accountable by the shipman inquiry for sending untrained officers to handle the case. Following the conclusion of the investigation, Shipman would murder three additional people. Good work, Greater Manchester Police. Sterling work. Taxi driver John Shaw would inform police in August that he believed Shipman was responsible for the deaths of 21 patients. Shaw grew uneasy when many of his elderly clients he brought to the hospital and who appeared to be in good health would pass away while under Shipman's care. After he made the error of attempting to fake the will of 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy, who was a former mayor of his town of Hyde, Shipman's crimes were ultimately discovered. I mean, trying to kill the former mayor? I mean, that's brash. That's big ball move. On June the 24th, 1998, Kathleen Grundy's body was discovered at her home. He was the last person to see her alive, and he later put his signature on her death record, putting old age as the reason of death. When Grundy's daughter, Angela Woodruff, who was a lawyer, by the way, learned that a will had been drafted, uh, ostensibly by her mother, with questions regarding its veracity, she grew alarmed. Woodruff and her children were not mentioned in the bequest, but Shipman, rather conveniently, would receive £386,000. I mean, that's just going to get you caught, you, you fucking boob. Like, come on, man. This is an amateur hour. You've probably falsified wills before, and you and you trip up like this. Poor form. Rookie, rookie error. Rookie error. Woodruff went to the police at solicitor Brian Burgess, uh, Brian Burgess's prompting, and they launched an inquiry. When Grundy's body was unearthed, it was discovered to have traces of uh, diamorphine uh, or heroin, a drug frequently used to treat the suffering of terminal cancer patients. However, a police investigation of Shipman's computer would reveal, would reveal that the entries were made after Grundy had passed away. Shipman has stated that Grundy had been an addict and had shown them comments he had written to that effect in his computerized medical record. When Shipman was apprehended on September the 7th, 1998, a brother typewriter, which, is, which was similar to the one used to create the fake will, was discovered in his possession. According to the 2000 book Prescription for Murder by writers Brian Whistle and Jean Ritchie, Shipman may have fabricated the will in order to avoid being discovered because his life was out of control or because he, he intended to retire at age 55 and flee the United Kingdom. The police investigated other deaths Shipman had certified and investigated 15 specimen cases. They discovered a pattern of administering lethal doses of diamorphine, signing patients' death certificates, and then falsifying medical records to indicate that they had been in poor health. In 2003, David Spiegelhalter suggested that uh, statistical monitoring could have led to an alarm being raised at the end of 1996 
when there were seven, uh, 67 excess deaths in females aged over 85 years, compared with 119 by 1998. Harold Shipman consistently refuted the murders and steadfastly refused to work with either police or forensic psychiatrists. When the authorities attempted to question him or show him pictures of his victims, he would sit motionless, yawn and refuse to look at any proof. Police could only bring 15 murder charges against Shipman, but it's thought that the number may have been anything from 250 to 450. On October the 5th, 1999, Shipman's trial would get underway at Preston Crown Court. He was accused of killing 15 people between 1995 and 1998 by administering deadly doses of diamorphine. Due to the alleged fabrication of Grundy's will, Shipman's legal counsel unsuccessfully sought to have the Grundy case tried separately from others. After six days of deliberation, on January the 31st, 2000, the jury would convict Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. Mr Justice Forbes then gave Shipman a life sentence for each of the 15 murder charges with a suggestion that he never be released, to be served concurrently with a sentence of four years for the forging of Grundy's will. The General Medical Council removed Shipman from the medical registration on February the 11th, 11 days after his conviction, just months after the British government leaders lost their authority to impose minimum terms for inmates Home Secretary David Blunkett would endorse the judge's full-life tariff two years after it was initially uh, proposed. Authorities had the option of filing numerous additional charges, but they decided against it because of the extensive media coverage of the first trial. In addition, the 15 life sentences previously given out made more litigation pointless. While in jail, Shipman would make friends with Peter Moore, who was a fellow serial killer. Ah, Harry found a bestie. Besties Harry and Peter. You know, because of their common pursuit of killing people. Shipman is the only doctor in the history of British medicine found guilty of murdering his patients. Despite claims that he had killed dozens more people over a 10-year period and um, possibly provided the role model for Shipman, John Bodkin Adams was accused of murdering a patient in 1957, but was ultimately exonerated. Because uh, Adams was exonerated, historian Pamela Cullen claims that before the Shipman case, there was no reason to look into the problems with the British court system. So Shippy has an extended stay in the jailhouse, right? He's, he's not going to, you know, off himself say, a few years into his sentence, right? Well, the night before his 58th birthday, on January the 13th, 2004, at 6.20am, Shipman would hang himself in his cell at HM Prison Wakefield. At 8.10am, he was pronounced dead. He had hung himself from the cell's window bars using his bedsheets, according to a statement from Her Majesty's Prison Service. After Shipman's death, his body was taken to the mortuary at the Medico Legal Centre for a post-mortem examination. West Yorkshire Coroner David Hinchcliffe eventually realized, uh, released the body to his family after an inquest was opened and adjourned shortly after. It really is a strong sign of innocence to hang yourself in your cell. If that doesn't scream, I'm not guilty, then 
I mean, I don't know what does. Some of the families of the victims would claim that Shipman's suicide left them feeling cheated, as it meant they would never receive the satisfaction of a confession or an explanation for why he did what he did. Home Secretary David Blunkett admitted that celebration was tempting. Quote, you wake up and you realize and you receive a call telling you that Shipman has topped himself and you think, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everybody's very upset that he's done it. Despite telling his probation officer that he was thinking about suicide to ensure his wife's financial security after losing his NHS pension, Shipman's motivation for killing himself was never determined. I mean, that's probably, uh, I'd say that's probably a safe reason why he did off himself. I'm just clutching at straws, but I'm thinking, yeah, that may be why. Uh, Primrose Shipman received a full NHS pension, which she would not have been entitled to if Shipman had lived past the age of 60. There you go. There you go. Furthermore, there was proof that Primrose had decided to doubt Shipman's culpability despite the fact that she had repeatedly defended his innocence in the face of overwhelming evidence. Shipman was temporarily denied privileges, including the ability to call his wife, as a result of his refusal to participate in programs that would have encouraged him to confess to his crimes. According to Shipman's cellmate, at the time, Primrose would write him a letter urging him to, quote, tell me everything, no matter what. Shipman's suicide could not have been predicted or prevented, according to a 2005 in investigation, but protocols should nevertheless be reviewed. Despite numerous erroneous claims concerning Shipman's funeral, his remains were left in Sheffield for more than a year after being given to his family. The police would warn his widow not to bury her husband in case his grave was harmed. Shipman was ultimately cremated at uh, Hutchcliffe Wood uh, Crematorium on March the 19th, 2005. Primrose and the couple's four children were the only ones present during the cremation, which was held at a time other than regular business hours to protect privacy. And now to see us out, here's a little factoid for you all. Here's some knowledge. Get ready, because I'm about to drop some, some learning on you. <laughs> the Shipman case and a number of suggestions in the Shipman Inquiry report resulted in modifications to the UK's accepted medical practices, now referred to as the Shipman effect. Many doctors observed changes in their, in their prescribing habits, and it's possible that a reluctance to take the chance of over-prescribing of over painkillers led to under-prescribing. Practices for death certification were also changed. The transition from single doctor to multi-doctor general practices were arguably the biggest change. This was not a direct recommendation, recommendation. Rather, it was done because the report found that there was insufficient oversight and protection of physicians' judgments. And that is the end of episode 31. A shorter episode, but I rarely do cases from the homeland, so I still hope you enjoyed. And, you know, it's, it's a case that, you know, people outside of the UK probably haven't really heard of. So I hope you found it interesting. And we even got educational at the end you know you learn as well as get horrified on this on this podcast it's a learning horrifying experience <laughs> as always if you enjoy the podcast please 
rate and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the website. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at horrorhouse underscore pod. And you can find the show on all podcasting apps. Don't forget to recommend the podcast to your loved ones, to your unloved ones, to your neutral ones. If you enjoy the show, recommending it to others is such a helpful way to make the show grow, especially for independent shows such as this one. Also, don't forget to join the network Discord, which I'll link in the show notes. Not only can you interact and support all the other amazing shows at Cultivate, but there's also a channel for Horror House. So you can give me feedback, leave ideas for future episodes, or we can just shoot the shit. And don't forget to join the Horror House Patreon, where you can get early access to episodes, bonus content, ad-free episodes, and more. And I also want to say a massive thank you to Ebony for joining the Horror House Patreon and becoming a patron. Thank you so much for the support. It is much, much appreciated. So all that's left to say is until next time, stay spooky, my morbid little family. Look, this isn't a cult, okay? Jesus. Jesus.